Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the second of our Better World podcast series, talking about the huge issue that is energy and housing. Uh, it follows on from the latest of Bologna Advisors' in-depth reports that examines it uh, in detail. What that report, in effect, states is you can't decarbonise the world without decarbonising housing. In the UK, over a quarter of all power is consumed by the domestic sector, and it generates a fifth of all emissions. Progress can generally be described as patchy. There are lots of uh, inventions, initiations within the market, but there's no identifiable strategy for either providing sustainable power or reducing demand for power in the first place. The other issue that the report considered is that generally speaking, and this people will touch upon this later, that people tend to just see uh, about the efficiency of homes and divorce it from the efficiency of places. And as Peter's quote within the report states, it's not just about the homes, it's about the places. So what surrounds homes, design, transport, proximity to work, energy sources within developments also matter. And we don't think it gets enough attention. What we've got then this evening is a panel that live and breathe the issue and all are well-placed and qualified to talk about the challenges faced by the industry in attempting to decarbonise both homes and places. So in uh, no particular order, uh, the first panellist, Peter Henry, Director of Sustainability at Harworth Group PLC, who was appointed earlier this year, uh, he's an engineer by trade, uh, he's been at Harworth uh, for over a decade, and um, Pete's been the, the, both the heart and the, the brains behind <laughs> some of Harworth's most complex regeneration schemes, includes the regeneration of the former Orgreave Colliery into Waverley, which is uh, Yorkshire's largest ever brownfield redevelopment, uh, the engineered land platform and eventual employment development at Logistics North in Bolton, where five and a half thousand people are employed, including people working for Amazon, Lidl and Aldi and the redevelopment of Thorsby Colliery, which closed for the final time in 2015 in Nottinghamshire, where Howarth are bringing forward uh, up to uh, 600 homes and uh, employment space alongside. Uh, Peter also has a 100% loss record to me at all things motorsport. Peter, good evening. <laughs> good evening. Um, I'm not sure I can add much Ian, but thank you very much. Ah, pleasure, pleasure. Uh, second on list, uh, Mr. David Cross, who I've already mentioned, founder of Skyhouse Co., former chief executive of Code Studios in Sheffield, Barnsley born and bred and an architect of some repute. Skyhouse is a Yorkshire-based house builder uh, who've been delivering eye-catching new homes across developments, including Waverley in Rotherham. Uh, Anuta Bridge Mill in Sheffield uh, and has got a, a suitable finance facility from the South Yorkshire Pension Fund to go forth and multiply with £13 million in place to buy new land. Uh, he's known for not holding back, but he's just back from holiday, so he may only be a 7 out of 10 rather than a 10 out of 10 tonight. David, good evening. Good evening. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. And finally, we have Melissa Kroger, who's Managing Director of Fenwood Estates. Uh, family-based house builder in Doncaster. She's bringing forward a number of life schemes across Doncaster and North Nottinghamshire, and is quite literally living the dream in terms of an SME house builder, bringing sites <laughs> out of the ground. Um, but they've been extremely successful at bringing forward high-quality development across Doncaster, including the Scolis Wharf development in Mexborough. And I've yet to meet uh, anybody with Melissa's level of determination in the field. Good evening to you, Melissa. Good evening, Ian. Thank you for that. 
Pleasure. So, <laughs> where, where to begin then? Because the, the, the report was, was huge and it, it took me a long while. It took me a long while to, to compose. But really, I think the first thing is, what's been the easiest thing uh, and the most difficult things that you guys have had to, in effect, face in bringing forward either new homes or new places? I'll start with you, Pete, because clearly you, you, you've lived the dream for, for over a decade in, in bringing forward brownfield development in the first instance in the northwest, in the Midlands, and in Yorkshire. What, what do you think the most the easiest or the most difficult things have been? Starting with an easy question then, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Good. Um, <laughs> start. So, uh, what's the easiest thing to move on at the moment? Um, strangely, and I wouldn't have said this sort of three or four years ago, is probably the availability of technology um, in order to change home design, understand how it works from an energy perspective, but also how we build. Um, and the moving on of build standards through building regulations, as I'm sure David and Melissa all agree with, um, is yeah. to push those changes quite quickly. I think probably what sits in the most difficult part, um, there's probably two or three things actually. One is around how we um, understand what we build the homes from and the effect that they have. And I know David's been looking at that um, very closely over the past couple of years. Um, and also the change in a sort of one size fits all approach to housing. Um, the way housing has been delivered over the past 10 to 15 years has been very uh, similar, some might say monotonous, um, and that's changing and changing quite rapidly. Um, and then for us as a sort of large scale master developer, um, predicting the future is a bit difficult, really, um, because we're looking at planning permissions that are going to be built out of the next 10 or 15 years and predicting what a house may look like or how its energy might provide it up here is going to be really, really difficult. And I think um, perhaps more, more of a challenge for Melissa in the areas she works, um, the cost challenges of doing that in terms of levelling up are going to be interesting. Building yeah. a house in Cambridge is the same cost as building it in Doncaster, but the revenue that comes back is, is not the same. So I guess they're, they're my list of things, if that helps. Yeah. yeah, thanks, Pete. And it's just worth noting for everyone that Harwood actually is publishing its interim results tomorrow morning at 7am. So get to see how uh, obviously all that is progressing in the field, Pete. But you've raised a number of issues. Uh, Dave, I mean, Pete mentioned about uh, materials and, and cost there. But from, from, from your perspective, what, what, what have you found easiest and, and most difficult? I think I, I agree with Pete. I think the technology is out there now. So what we do at Sky House... We plug in air source cylinders, which are like air source heat pumps, but effectively are a hot water cylinder that recycles warm air from bathrooms and kitchens. That's quite a simple bit of, well, a complex bit of kit, but it's easy to, to plug in and, and build on site. So it's not too complex for the builders and the plumbers and the electricians. Um, we all know about solar panels, I think EV charging, all the, all the technology plugs in quite easily. But the difficult thing with that is getting the consumer to understand it in the first instance, that you might be going for a zero gas house and therefore everything runs off electricity. Then you've got the issue with the consumer not, not understanding how to use it. Um, not understanding the benefits of it. So they might be, so one of the complaints we've had recently is that they don't get any money back off the government for the solar panels. Well, that's not our problem. It's not what, it's not nothing we can do. Um, then they're complaining that if the sun doesn't shine, it doesn't generate any electricity. But these are consumer facing issues rather than a construction facing issue. So technology is quite easy. Regulation, so the, the, the uh, building control planning, doesn't really push hard enough just yet. It's going to get harder, but I think the tech's there to deliver it. I think other easy easy things to do are to, to 
create a good fabric first solution so highly insulated double glazing triple glazing if you can but all these have, have cost implications so from 2019 to today build costs have gone up 24 percent which is an astonishing number um, and that is a big big issue for us in the industry at the minute and the other big in issue with along that sits alongside that is actually getting the tradespeople that you need to do the jobs they're all busy we've got a lack of workers people who have retired early from covid uh, people died from covid and then people have left the country through brexit and i think that's a major major issue for us yeah i, I uh, yeah yeah chip in there Ian. Yeah, from your perspective, because clearly, I mean, you know, Dave mentioned about the, uh, the the ramp up in costs, and obviously, you've been living that dream with some of the small sites you've been bringing forward. Just want to touch upon that now. That's affected your ability to to make your homes even more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. So, in terms of elements like the air source cylinders and stuff that Dave at Skyhouse are already sort of implementing we're in a position where, again, it's about um, the educating of the purchasers that's going to be the difficult part. With that, people, if we, most of our sites have still got uh, gas boilers going in at the moment until our new planning permissions come through. But uh, people who look at air source uh, sites and then come and look at a site that have, are still installing gas boilers take the easy route and tend to sort of pick those homes. So there's got to be a massive shift in education for purchasers on how to make how to run their home efficiently once they've got all the elements within them. Um, whether that starts in schools or or, or whatever, that's a, another sort of story for the government, I guess. But that all again brings costs. So the easiest way to uh, bring the energy efficiency in is through fabric first, as Dave says again, with your insulation, etc. However, we've seen a shift in insulation price up as much as forty percent just for that one element. And that's a massive cost across our sites and across our business. So to try and bring the fabric first and the triple glazing etc it's a real struggle to to put those elements in and, and achieve the on the house prices that we achieve sorry within the south yorkshire area um i think as peter said the houses are going to cost the same to build in cambridge as in somewhere like doncaster barnsley rotherham but we can't bring in the sales revenue to cover that and still still appease our funders and, and make something on the bottom line so ever increasing difficulty across the board there I, I think it's difficult from every angle, Ian. It's a, it's an entire podcast in its own own right because if we try to do something special, i.e., better design, better eco credentials, all that stuff, better public realm, pocket parks, street furniture, all that stuff that makes better places costs money. But then the the planning system requires affordable housing. It requires a percentage for art. It might requ um, require section one hundred sixes towards ed education, towards public open space. So there's a lot of demands, push and pull factors pulling on every single development. But what we can't do is is push the prices too high because there's an affordability issue in South Yorkshire, Sheffield City region. There's only so so far you can squeeze it. But if the councils aren't willing to bend on their demands, their tax demands from SIL and affordable housing and section 106s, then your margin gets squeezed and then your funder won't fund it. So you can't always push too far. So but people blame new build houses and say, oh, new build homes are terrible. Well, they're not. There's a lot of things that go into a project. I think I, I did a, a long thread on it on Twitter um, and I put some metrics in there that's, and it was something like only 
don't quote me on this, about 40% of the, of the cost of a house was build cost. Well, that's tiny. And if, yeah. but, but if you want to then start building better, you've got to spend 50%, 60% to get the quality, the, the materials. And it's just impossible mm. because it's, it's not fully thought through in the round. Mm. Okay, well, well nominated for, for going on the future podcast, just about that one issue, Dave. But, but <laughs> I, I suspect that I think part of what I've been picking up from, from all three of you is around the way regulators uh, are attempting to respond to the challenge. And I've, I've heard already, uh, around local plan authorities, around building control and, and so on. I mean, how well are regulators actually adapting to the challenges as, as, as things stand? Because clearly you've got things like domestic gas being phased out by the end of 2025. Melissa, you mentioned, obviously, you've still got gas boilers go, going in as things currently stand. I mean, P Pete, you've got some fairly trenchant views on the way regulators are adapting. Uh, how, how well do you think they're adapting to the decarbonisation challenge? I think with all these things, it's a, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Um, you have pockets of really good practice, pockets that aren't working too well. But I think when we talk about regulars, we kind of we touched on the planning situation there, and David was talking through that, and he and I have chatted through that before, and that it's a really difficult position for the people that are asking the questions of the developers. Actually, we ought not to be scared to say that we don't know all of the answers right now. Um, we're changing the way that we build homes, we're changing the way we service homes. Um, and that's going to continue to change. So there's going to be a big element of uncertainty as to cost, what the houses look like, who's going to move into them, how they interface with everything else on a site. But I think for me on the regulation side, the area that's probably most challenging right now is energy um, and is a move from a, a very centralised grid structure, uh, not my area of expertise, but I'll talk about it a little bit, um, to a more decentralised grid, um, which is necessitated um, by the carbon uh, reductions that we're all looking for, but also by the movements in technology. And I think at the moment that um, energy grid issue, that regulation issue, because all of the regulation is set up for that centralised grid, it's not set up for a partially decentralised grid, is causing a lot of lead through issues on delivery of the homes, um, yeah. in terms of how you incorporate perhaps solar panels on the roof, how you incorporate EVs, and it, it's causing a lot of regulatory issues for us uh, when we're delivering the infrastructure for the homes. And I guess, Melissa, David, it's causing you guys headache at the, the sort of delivery end as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Again, not only from a cost point of view, but um, when we talk about um, such as back to the EV chargers, where we are already implementing those on our sites before the uh, the new uh, regulation came in on, on that. But the, the point with it is it's not it is the cost per home it, it might be something like 500 pound a, a home at present but it's the actual infrastructure of uh, the three phase and the potential the substations and all this sort of uh, all the, these elements that go with it that become difficult not only to coordinate from again like Dave mentioned he touched on labor and lead times and and works getting done not only from that side of things but again cost and and um sort of practicability on site of coordinating all these extra elements so but there's there's lots of things that are, are sort of come into that um as well as cost well we've got we've got all sorts of regulations haven't we planning planning rules are pretty strong what you've got to do and what you, what you can do and what you can't do the, the 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 requirement to have more renewables a percentage of the development to be renewable or or whatever the local authorities supplementary guidance is on that then you've got the building regulations they're getting tougher which is good i think we should um and then we've got the new part o that's coming out or come out which is about 
um, overheating. It's another cost of development. It'll significantly change the way we design homes, probably, unless you're a national house builder. Um, you'll probably just have really small windows. Hmm. But these things, I think the regulation is there. But the problem with regulation is it doesn't, it, if you work your way around it, they don't talk to each other and don't pull together and it makes makes the delivery of housing ever more increasingly difficult because the costs go up the complexity goes up your consultant fees go go up you don't have the certainty of getting your planning permission through on time and if you don't get your planning permission through on time you've got delays delays cost money overheads hq costs and things like that and it just doesn't help the sme small builder um but 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 if, if you were to if I could wave a magic wand, I think if you look at what the Tory government's delivered in the last 12 years in terms of retrofitting existing houses, it's zero. There's no help. We should be reducing VAT on, on retrofitting houses because new builds are pretty good. They can be better and they will get better because that's easy to regulate. But we've got to start helping people in terraced houses, Victorian homes, Georgian homes, Edwardian homes that are absolutely terrible for environmental um, standards. And I think a simple way to do that is to tax on council tax through energy performance, EPCs. We're going to be regulating how we rent houses. So you won't be able to rent a house that's got an EPC below a C. And I think we should be penalising houses that don't have EPCs, at least C. So it, but then back that up with some government carrot incentives like cheaper loans or um, lower interest rates, things like that. So it, it, the regulation's there. It's good for new build, but there's a lot, a lot more we, we could be doing to improve en energy efficiency in housing in the UK. It's, it's, it's probably the worst in Europe. Well, I mean, the, I think that last point is, is up for debate, but it is, it is up there in terms of worst performers. The one thing that, as you rightly say, is that older homes are far less efficient than newer homes. I mean, the report goes into it in some length. And we agree. I mean, UK Green Building Council as well, David, called for exactly the same thing, which is a national retrofit programme. And whilst we're not, you know, we're talking about new developments, new places on this particular podcast, retrofit has to form part of the decarbonisation of the industry. Otherwise, we'll never, ever get anywhere close to net zero. So well, you can flip it. You could flip it on its head and say, well, rather than retrofitting all the houses, why don't we just have... 100% renewable energy and it doesn't matter if you live in a greenhouse because the energy that you're putting in to, to warm it is coming from renewable uh, uh, sources. So like Peter said about decentralising the grid, battery storage technology is getting better and better. Domestic uh, storage will be, be widely available very soon. It's still a little bit expensive, three, four, five, six grand for a house. But soon when you've got your solar panel, you'll be able to charge your battery up. You'll be able to use, run. so when you're not in, the problem with solar panels is now you don't get the feeding tariff, um, which incentivizes you financially. You're out during the day when your house is generating the power. So what do you do? You, you put the washing machine on, but that's about it. So once right. we start getting back battery storage technology, we'll be having decentralized small nuclear reactors. We'll be having big store battery storage power stations, if you like, and so on. But so we could, the government could spend its money elsewhere to decarbonize right. and we don't need to have efficient homes. So it, it, it's a, it's a, it, it depends on which way you look at it. It's back to education again on that note as well, isn't it? So it's all right, all the, all everything being uh, there and the, the battery element all being sort of, um, pushed on, etc., so that we can do all these these new uh, elements and in the homes. But for now, somebody can be on the way home from work, flip on their Nest app, 
and flick their heating on. They need to be educated that they might need to slowly heat things all day or use their washing machine at a certain time of day or night and all these sorts of elements. So once all these are put in, the education is massive key um, mm. to everybody actually doing what they should be doing with all the new technology in the homes. Mm. I mean, they, they well, that's right. Um, we'll, we'll quickly come on to that. But I think the, the wider point around uh, energy supply and then around uh, decarbonising the, the, the housing itself and retrofit. Frankly, the government should be doing both. But in my view, it's easier to announce a retrofit programme because obviously the you know, skills are there, the technology is known. I think it's fairly easy to create the financial framework versus an entirely new energy strategy, which the, frankly, the UK hasn't had uh, for at least 40 years. The last notable energy strategy this country had was around the UK, it was around North Sea oil and gas, uh, in all honesty. But what I want to come on to uh, away from that, and, and Melissa touched on the education pieces around whether your buyers or people who are buying new homes are really that bothered about homes being as energy efficient as possible, or whether it's just come up to the surface um, because of, uh, frankly, being hit in the wallet otherwise. I mean, Melissa, you've, you, where, where have you, I mean, you're selling homes at night's gate you know, you, you know yeah. it's kicked off the development over the past couple of months um have you seen any kind of notable shift in attitudes towards whether efficiency matters yeah just of late and obviously all the media controversy surrounding all of this um aside with all the energy cap etc etc um we finally we have now got purchasers coming and asking what the epc rating is before most of them especially first-time buyers didn't even know what that was or they weren't bothered what it was or what the home was um, but they are all looking now to see uh, I mean all our developments have been a B rating for a number of years now and, and obviously we'll be increasing from that as as we introduce new elements um, and solar energy etc um, but they will look at alternate sites and decide um, whether where to buy the home based on the rating so a couple came to one of our sites the other day they'd been to a site that had got a C rating and decided to proceed with us because our homes had got the B rating and it was linked also to the the fact that they would get a, a better rate uh, with their mortgage for buying a greener home so they're linking that in as well some of the bigger banks now are looking at energy ratings and, and doing better deals on on homes that have got the uh, are up there with the EPC. Did that buyer state which bank they were getting the mortgage through? They didn't, but I do know that um, some of the, uh, like Lloyd's for instance, and, and the high street banks are all shifting towards uh, towards it. Um, and uh, somebody else on, on that development is buying for investment through a buy to let. And I think that, don't quote me, but I've got a feeling it was NatWest. Um, or, or one of the again the high street banks, and they actually requested to see the EPC as part of the um, the valuation and to to present her with a mortgage offer. So the banks are all getting in there as well and uh, and sort of supporting the fact. Mm. I mean, the, the, and again, I think Lloyd's have taken a, a leading role in um, well, frankly, ESG or sustainability related mortgages. And I think yeah. they're just coming in the path. I mean, Dave, in terms of Ootsie Bridge and, and uh, Waverley and other sites that you've been actively selling homes, um, have you had a similar experience? Dave's put himself on mute by mistake. 
Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, yeah, it's very much part of our USP. So we go zero carbon under construction. So we offset, which is a bit of a cheat and a greenwash, if you like. But it's a step in the right direction for us to help the construction process be at least offset. We're now doing something with a local initiative called Kids Plant Trees, where we're giving them money to get kids involved with planting trees. So that's something we're doing from our ESG perspective as a as a company. But we've gone zero gas in advance of the 2025 regs. And we think buyers are definitely coming to us uh, because of this. Some of the buyers are accidental because they're buying in the location they want and with their own new home. So they're buying it because it's there. And then the green issues are secondary. But we have... Um, lots of inquiries from all over the country. People have moved to Uterbridge just because it's a greener development. But again, it's in a special location with the river. Um, but we do definitely see a premium. I think the RICS said it's something like 40 grand to go from an E to a B in terms of your EPC is the benefit. So that does give you some comfort. But then the problem you get with the increase in value that you try to demand for the house you might get the survey that, that, that down values it that doesn't understand the technology as much and again this comes back to education it comes back to people just doing the way things that they used to do in the old ways rather than looking at it as an innovative kind of way so again the risk for us is we spend money on all the tech we charge a premium for the house and then the value down values it but in terms of the demand the buyer they definitely definitely see the value EV charging points are standard. We're trying to get greener and greener. So our houses are currently B plus. And that's because some of the products that we use in our houses aren't yet accredited with the SAP points that you get. So we expect when the new EPC SAP rules come out, we should move into an A rating, um, which will, well, it's as good as you can get really without going passive house. And then what we are also looking at doing is what do we need to do with, because we use steel frames now, uh, which are semi-modular, energy efficient because they're made in a factory that is less waste, it's quicker and they're recyclable. Um, and we're going to see what, what do we need to do to the frame of the house then to get it to a passive standard? What is the in increasing cost for us to do that? So long answer to your question is yes, the buyers do see it definitely for what we do. Pete, from your perspective, I mean, clearly Harworth sell uh, engine, well, completed land to a house builders of all sizes, you know, Barrett's, Taylor MP, all yeah. the way down to, um, you know, local house builders. I mean, what were they reporting to in terms of, you know, the, what, the, the sort of homes that they end up developing on, on Harworth land? I wouldn't use the phrase all the way down to, I'd say definitely across, in some cases up. <laughs> no, you're quite right, yeah. <laughs> That's right, yeah. But a range of house builders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, from a, a sort of, if our customers are the house builders' perspective, um, we're seeing an increasing momentum in a focus on energy efficiency and also interestingly over the last six months um, had a, a hugely increased focus on the embodied carbon in the bill so that's really encouraging to see but I wonder just listening to David and Melissa and just stewing over my own thoughts in terms of how the people buying the houses view things I think it is an awareness thing and I think a big part of it comes down to being for the last 20, 30, 40 years completely distant to where your energy came from Really, you flicked your light switch on, didn't you, and, and gave little thought to it. Um, the thing that was producing it, unless you lived next door, was probably 50 miles away. And you had no sort of reference, no relevance to it. And speaking from personal experience, having installed solar panels on my own roof and watched what goes on, as soon as you do that, your interest in what you're using and how you're using it becomes much greater. So I think as people move into these homes, um, 
I guess you're seeing it at Skyhouse, David, that people become more interested in their energy production and through that notice what they're using and how they're using it. So I think there will be a gradual snowball effect as people move into homes that are producing their own energy of people understanding how these things work and becoming more aware of what they're using. And I guess a, a little anecdote there, I mean, David, you were talking about solar panels. Um, I installed mine, uh, did the same thing as, as you were talking about in terms of well, when I'm out, very little is being used. Um, and then somebody I was talking to just mentioned uh, around putting a, a, an immersion heater onto our water. And actually, do you know what? For the last three or four months, our water has been heated wholly by the solar panels. I, even in my career, was unaware that that was a technology that had advanced so much. And it's just that awareness point, isn't it? As people move mm. in, I suspect they're going to start to understand how these things work and become yeah. far better and more efficient as to what they're doing. For the day. Well, again, anecdotally, I built I built my house in 2011 and it was almost a code five standard. So if you remember the code sustainable homes yeah, yeah. and, we, and we, we didn't go to a five because we'd have had to have had a shallow bath rather than deep bath and, and so on. So it wasn't always practical to get to a five and a six and living it as how we wanted to. But we've got solar panels, we've got air source heat pumps. I've now got an EV and I've become obsessed. I've got a smart <laughs> meter. Yeah. I like to turn it. I like to look at the smart meter and I look at the house and think, right, it's using 400 watts. That's all. And I think, well, I've got 4.5 kilowatts on the roof. So yeah. that's driving the house brilliantly. Um, I can charge my car on solar, even on yeah. a cloudy day. I get 1.4 kilowatts out of the, out of the panels on a, a cloudy day so I can charge my car. Even if I get 3%, 4%, that gives me something like six or seven miles. Well, it's three yeah. miles to work, three miles back. So I'm running, I'm almost running my car 100% on solar, which is a huge carbon reduction. And then what I also do is I think, right, well, I'll walk to work today and leave the car That's on it. charge all day. So I'm walking, which is greener and healthier. And then I've got, I've got my char car on charge for a full day, which I get even more free power. And it, it's fantastic. So why, and, and why would you, why should we as a country rely on power that's coming from places like Russia? We've seen what's happened from some of the unstable, unstable uh, Middle East and Latin America. We, we go to massive ex um, lens to bring all this power into our country when it's all on our coastline we've got wind we've got solar we've got all sorts of different things we should be doing rather than relying on despotic regimes to give us our power it's common yeah. sense not just from a sustainability perspective but from a global security perspective it's going away from that one size fits all solution again isn't it and i wonder put my optimism hat on um if, if geeks like you and i are now looking at every bit of energy we, we consume in our homes <laughs> we can see what's going on um, and likewise, our wider supply is being disrupted. Maybe there's a pincer movement there that maybe the government can take advantage of just to raise awareness, really. I don't know. Mm. Maybe, maybe I'm being too so. No, I, th I think we will. I think everything will become multimodal, the way we travel, yeah, yeah. whether it's down to hydrogen trains rather than electrifying the railway um, network, where, whether we'll live closer to where we work because cities are cleaner now, where we're already seeing low traffic neighbourhoods becoming more popular, car-free city centres, more walking, all that kind of stuff. It will, we, we have to change the way we live because we've be, be designed our towns and cities around the car. Since Henry Ford, I heard somewhere that the American car producers lobbied the American government to allow them to build further and further away because it meant people had to buy a car. And you yeah. think of that, and you think of the, the car dependency that most people live with. It's awful. It puts them into fuel poverty. It puts them into a car for 40 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour a day tra traveling to work and back. It's wasted, wasted time, wasted life when you could be doing something productive. Mm. Yeah. Well, that 
provides a beautiful segue to where this podcast is going next, which is, you know, the, the report that, that we did in effect said, look, you need to think way beyond the house when it comes to energy consumption and frankly, where that energy needs to be consumed in the first place. And I know that, you know, within this, this idea of 20 minute neighborhoods, it was a case of um, being able to have all of your uh, services, area of work, everything to do with your uh, leisure uh, life all within that, that, that time frame. Um, and really, Pete, I know that's something that, that you know you've tried to apply throughout throughout your career. But I mean, what what overriding principles around new developments beyond the home um, do you think are most important? And and do you think developers either get right or get wrong? Yeah, I think um, I mean, there's a lot of the use of the term placemaking at the moment. But for me, an awful lot of that sits within just making good places to live. Um, and I think the three things for me that, and, and David's absolutely right, you know, um, let's be honest, how many times have we all sat in planning meetings and the most important discussion for hours on end seems to be with the highways officer. Um, <laughs> and that leads to a whole series of decisions that people perhaps don't fully understand. But I think for me, the three biggest things that are changing that will allow us to change those places is the decentralization of energy uh, and understanding um, what each site needs. So one site might be very different to another. Um, the other one, as David was rightly alluding to, is changes in the way we transport. Um, and actually, electric cars aren't necessarily the answer, but different types of transport might be. You know, why does my three mile journey need to be in a car with all of the things associated with that? Why can't it be on an electric scooter, for instance? And that then allows us to change the place that we are creating because we're not forever thinking about where we put our two or three cars. Um, and the last one for me is how we incorporate nature into what we do um, for a long time in terms of planning um, jurisdiction. Nature has been a, a thing that you've been put to one side and you do in one corner of the development because that's what the planning asks for. Actually, it should be incorporated in what you're doing because of all the benefits it has, not only from a carbon sequestration point of view, but from a health and well-being point of view and just generally from being in a nice place. You can go for a wander down the road and wander into a little park with some trees or various other bits and pieces. The benefits are enormous, difficult to quantify. But I think those three things for me, and I don't know what the other guys think, are the three things that outside of the house, that actually we're ready for change now. Um, and if the regulation and planning can catch up with us, there's, there's some really good things we can be doing. So, I mean, energy, transport and nature and, you know, we, we did touch upon what, um, for instance, Modwin, some Modwin are trying to do with the microgrid in Longbridge. Hmm. Quite quite an interesting concept. But as you say, Pete, there are, there are wider technologies at play. I mean, uh, Melissa, David, I mean, from your, from your point of view, would you chime in with, with what Pete suggested? I mean, on the, tra on the transport side, I mean, how, how are you finding that at the moment? Thinking active travel, public transport links... Anything to do with, with moving away from uh, unleaded or, or diesel? Now, I think that's progressing. Um, well, we only have one parking space per house. And again, when we started the, the model for Sky House, the surveyor said, well, you're crazy. No one's going to buy a house without parking. But I pointed them to houses on Ecclesall Road in Sheffield where it's all on street parking and people snap the houses up. And those same houses don't really have big back gardens. They have a yard. But the reason that people buy them is because it's got great facilities nearby, like the 20-minute neighbourhood that they can walk to. It's got Encliffe Park they can walk to. So why do we have to build houses that all have a 50-square-metre close-board, fenced-off back garden that's got a trampoline and astroturf in it? 
that we don't need to do that. All the best places are walkable. And I always quote places like Barcelona or Palmer or even Paris. Look at what Paris is doing as initiatives. Look at Copenhagen, incredible. And the Netherlands, what they've done with their neighbourhood. So we've got to think more joined up. The, the idea, the concept of CBDs are outdated. Out-of-town mm -hmm. retail parks, national house builder estates. We've created zones for people to get in a car and drive to. And that has to change because retail's dying. The office model has died to a certain extent with work from home. Cars, we can't just keep building more roads because they just get jammed. And we've known that for years and years. What we need is a proper joined up thinking about how we redevelop our towns and cities. And everyone has to live close. So this is a great statistic that the number one thing you can do in your life by a country mile to improve your quality of life is to reduce or remove your commute. Think of that. That's the number one by a long, 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 long way. Yeah. I think that's where, uh, obviously, there's a lot of stress related to the commute, as, as we all know, um, and re reducing that stress by, I mean, people have started to work at home a lot more since COVID. All our homes were now creating a space where a home office can either be introduced or, or is designed into the home. Um, and for instance, our site over at Sutton Cum Lound, it's based um, with transport bus links, etc. and 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 near a nature reserve so people can get out it's been a real big draw for people that know that there's the lake and the walks and everything nearby whether they've got dogs or children or they are going to work from home and they want to walk out being placed near these sorts of um areas is uh, is quite big for the purchasers and it's something we should push more as developers so that that these things are available for our purchasers but again, it's difficult with stuff. There's a new biodiversity net gain policy that's coming out, which is going to make developing even harder because we're going to have to put more and more green things into your development, which is great. But the problem we find is you might do a tree-lined street and the council turns around and says, oh, we don't want to adopt that because we don't want the maintenance. <laughs> so you've got yeah, these push-pull factors all the time. It's just... We, we know what makes a great place, but we're stopped from making great places because a bank might turn around and say, well, I don't want to lend on that apartment because it's over a restaurant or it's over a bar or it's on top of a shop or you can't build the nice um, intricate little streets that because you can't get a refuse vehicle down it. And it, it's crazy. We know that we know all the bits that go into it, but the banks, the surveyors, the planners, building control, health and safety all have to come together and, and, the, and the problem is the easy way to do it is to do what we've always done and just follow the manual for streets and build roads that are 5.5 meters wide with six meter radiuses and two meter footpaths with speed bumps and we build out a town and that's the problem it's difficult to do it right because you come up against too many push-pull factors yeah so does that Sorry, sorry, Dave. Does that require yeah. legislation or any kind of regulatory mandate? I'm, trying, I'm just trying to work out how you'd punch through to try and unify what are five or six entirely different disciplines. Well, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to be a little bit bold here. I think it's about empowerment of the people making the decisions um, and allowing them to take a risk. Yeah, and accepting that things may or mm. may not work, and, and I say mm. that out of experience. I mean, mm. you, you and I lived the dream on the first Sky House plots at Waverley, yeah, which were very different to the norm, and and yeah. tooth and nail yeah. with with authorities around parking spaces and design standards and all of that good stuff. Um, but the people at the end of the the line making the decisions are making it based on their specialism, 
um, and giving those people the opportunity to effectively look up from the very narrow place that they are and be more general, I think would be a huge change. And that's just a cultural change, I think, within, within authorities and regulators. You're 100% right. If you get a good planner or a good local authority with a good planner or a good team within it that wants yeah. to take those risks, they can. There are ways of circumnavigating the, the highways. You can have conversations with them. One of our developments that we were doing in, in Worksop, um, they wouldn't pass this internal little lane that we were doing because they, it was on private land. And we said, well, we'll give the bin lorry permission to drive over there. Oh, no, no, we don't want to do that. Um, you, have to, you have to guarantee if damages occurred, you'll pay for it. And we said, yeah, yeah, we, we understand your truck might damage the, the path. And they went, no, no, it's if, if the path damages our truck. And we, we said, well, it won't. <laughs> but yeah, so we will do an undertaking to repair your refuse vehicle. So, yeah. so they can't, they, there are, there are, it is possible to flex it, but it just makes the job so much more difficult, the planning delays that you get, and then the resistance you get from other people. Like I said, I keep talking about surveyors that might not quite get it. They might be traditionalist, not, not modernist. They might not be into eco. They might not be into, we have roof gardens. They might not fully understand it. And, and it's, it, when you're trying to innovate, you're coming up against so many um, obstacles that sometimes it's easy just to give in and, and do the standard stuff. So it is about empowerment and it's about getting the right local authorities that engaged early enough that want to see it. As well, of course, we've got the parish councils to deal with oh, on yeah. development. So that's uh, that's one of the main barriers for, for us is appeasing everybody sort of within that realm. Um, again, everybody's got different thoughts and feelings on all these different elements. And uh, you, you, you're almost going around trying to convince every single party of the whys and what fors, which is not only exhausting and time consuming, but it costs it costs because it's your time trying to sort it all out. And again, time mm. delays, cost, etc. We all know where that sort of leads in terms of needing to get on site and needing to get building as an SME. It's uh, it's a real issue for us. And Mel, mm. what about planning committees? They're even worse, aren't they? When you've got <laughs> yeah. they people are, that yeah. don't really fully understand the system. Well, they understand the system, but all their yeah. all the councillors are really bothered about is getting re-elected. So if someone objects in their neighbourhood to your development they're likely to, to, to vote to refuse it because they, they, they don't want to lose the position. So I think the committee system is rubbish. We need yeah. much more empowerment for everything to be delegated by the professionals that are employed to do it. And if we can circumnavigate the committee system, it would free up things much, 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 much more. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the planning system and the way that works uh, yeah, it will be covered as part of a future podcast, David, as you can imagine, uh, there's quite a few people calling for its reform. Just before we, we move on slightly, you did swear at me before by using the word AstroTurf, which uh, <laughs> is probably one of the most regressive things that I've seen on new developments in, in recent years. Uh, yeah. and, and will be probably something that we at Bologna push uh, for its removal. But anyway, we'll, 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 we'll move on from that one. And <laughs> I think, what, uh, I think here hey. we, can, we can learn an awful lot from the Lorax film, if you want to look that up. <laughs> uh, one, of, one, of Pete's, uh, one of Pete's favourite films, but I won't mention what some of his other favourite films are. <laughs> so, uh, moving, Is that for another moving, podcast? <laughs> no, moving, moving, uh, moving, I'm only joking, of course, Pete. So moving swiftly on, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned, Pete, right at the start of the podcast was around technology improvements. One of the easiest areas, which in effect, because of the way that technology developed, even in the past decade, where you've had huge improvements in, for instance, solar PV yeah. and people's ability to then subsequently you know, fit that within in, into their uh, homes or within, within developments. Um, 
within that, I mean, you, you talked about microgrids, you talked about solar being uh, areas of, of reward, but what are the biggest risk areas with, with, with this for, you know, in, in, in development? And this could include things that we, we, we don't know about. You could even, Pete, talk about um, measuring whole life carbon costs, if you fancy. I could, I could. Um, look, I think it's an interesting world uh, at the moment. So I think for me, there's three areas of that question. One is the in-building technology, which I think has moved on leaps and bounds. Um, and, you know, I lived the dream of code for sustainable homes 10, 12 years ago and trying to interpret that. But at that point, in-home technology wasn't ready. Um, solar panels, um, smart uh, uh, meters in your home, those kind of things, they, they weren't ready. But in reality, and, and I suspect David and Melissa will agree, those technologies are ready now and can be relatively easily incorporated, assuming yep. that the cost works. Um, so that bit of it, I think actually the world is ready and the technology is ready. So that's actually, in the concept of this discussion, a relatively easy one to move past. But I think the other two elements are interesting. If I jump to the other side of it, I think the decentralization and the decarbonization of the grid is one that's moving on and obviously becoming very relevant. It's one that we can't influence hugely. So I'm not going to stick on that too much. But the one that interests me the most is the bit in the middle. And it's what I like to call integrated site-wide renewable energy. Um, so something that's developed, uh, let's say we're developing a, a thousand new homes on a former coal mine. As part of that, the, the panacea, if you like, would be to incorporate an energy project into that development, whether it be a small solar farm, a wind project, a battery, whatever it might be, to directly power the homes adjacent. Um, but at the moment, those private wire networks are, if not impossible, exceedingly difficult to progress because the technology is not quite there, but also the regulation and the funding aspects aren't there. Now, if I can read across to the commercial development world, we're having the same discussions there, but it's a little bit easier because on any commercial site, there may be four, five, ten occupiers to deal with. Um, for a thousand home developments, that might be 2000 people to deal with. And I think, I don't know if David and Melissa agree, but that middle ground of how you incorporate a loosely termed private wire network into a new housing development, if we can crack that nut, then actually I think we're a long way down the line. Yeah, I, uh, there's loads of examples of how um, developments, when we when I was an architect, well, practicing architect, would try to put CHP systems in, in blocks of apartments. The problem came, I think Urban Splash tried it a few times and, and stops. Yeah is because you've then you then become the energy provider and you've then got to bill all these people individually and then you've got to chase the debts if they don't pay them so it's it's the same reason why councils sold off the council houses um was because it, it's a, a political thing people then blame the council for their housing problems rather and then people would blame you as a house builder for their energy bills and then some wouldn't pay some would pay it's like the the, the service charge problems yeah. so i think that the technology definitely is there I'm not sure how you would do it. Again, like you said about how do you plug in a thousand hours, it's very difficult. And, and then how do you administer it, the cost to administer it? So could you just put a, a solar farm on and give them the energy for free? So there's no administration at all. That would be one way to do it. But then would the would the buyer pay for it? it yeah. We looked at um, we looked on a, a previous site uh, quite a while ago now at um, things such as biomass, uh, etc. And when it got into the throes of uh, how do we deal with that from the purchaser's perspective through a management company? Um, it all became very, um, yeah, as Dave said, you only need a few people sort of not paying and this, that and the other. And it just it just sent so 
difficult to navigate at the time that you almost gave up on it but these things need ironing out so we can put uh, elements such as that in it's just how do we um how do we bring it all together to have everybody on board and manage it properly yeah and i must admit i'm spending a lot of time doing that both in the commercial development world and on the residential world and trying to to remove the silos that exist yeah and yeah. talking to for instance in the residential world homeowners house builders then people like us in terms of infrastructure delivery, the utilities companies, the planners, but getting those discussions joined up with everybody in their busy world is a real challenge, but it's definitely something we're focusing on because I'm, I'm adamant that if you get those people in a room and talking, that actually we can find a solution and yes. start to then challenge local government and government in terms of their regulation, how they're approaching things and what's important. Because I think, David, you've mentioned a few times, you're absolutely right. Each of these new bits of regulation and legislation in their own right stand the test, but put them together and they don't, do they? And that's no. the work that I think is really important. Yeah. And just conscious that, you know, within those answers, we focused on energy towards the homes, but construction and moving away from diesel generators in off-grid power, uh, clearly forms part of, of decarbonisation. I know that all three of you have, have looked at uh, what kind of alternatives can be brought in to the diesel generator. Um, what, what have you found there? Do you still think it's far too expensive to introduce alternatives in an age where, you know, clearly costs are, are at an all-time high? Well, we looked at the... Um... The hydrogen one that you introduced us to, I think, was too expensive at the time. I wonder if it's co if it's yeah. um, competitive now, Ian, with the price of fuel. I don't. I haven't looked. Yeah, I haven't revisited that. that. We looked at that as well, Dave. We've also looked at hydrogen in terms of um, uh, company approaches recently with um, forklift um, truck, all the different machinery that we might need and, and different um, ways to power those. But when you sort of look into it, um, or when you look at electric powered um versions of those you get so much time out of them and then obviously they need to charge and it's not productive on site to use something for an hour and charge it it's difficult to try and introduce it at our sort of size and level anyway um but mm. trying to look at, at actual um now obviously the red diesels uh, uh gone out of the yeah. frame yeah. we're looking at alternates there just not easy to try and no. uh, implement it at present I think the cheapest at the moment is HVO, um, yeah. and that's because the existing diesel generators can be run off them. So therefore, an operative knows how to use a diesel generator, can swap fuel in effect, use it, you know, similar run times to, to existing, uh, existing technology. The, the, the problem that you've raised there, Melissa, quite rightly, is twofold. One is the cost of introducing it, and you're right, hydrogen fuel cells in the current format, uh, still way more expensive than, than a diesel generator. But then it's the use case for you in introducing it, which is if I can only use it for an hour at a time versus several hours for a diesel gen set, of which I've got no problems on reliability, how does that then subsequently affect my ability to deliver my site? Uh, I yeah. think that that's the, one of the key things, which, again, I think the red diesel ban, I've, I've placed it within the report, was the right thing to do, um, you know, with, with, on balance. But the, the issue is, and it comes back to this idea of push and pull that David mentioned before, there's very little incentive for the industry to move over to, to alternatives. It tends to get left to 
uh, government departments interested in research and development to try and bring that forward. So there's a, there's a, there's a clear area of improvement. Yeah, but there. people like JCB are, are, are the forefront of it, aren't they? They're coming up with all sorts. All their machinery is now getting more and more eco-friendly with hydrogen and different fuels. So I think it, it, it that'll just happen naturally, I think. The, yeah. the machinery that we use we because we work on a steel frame system mm. we have a crane on site anyway that's an electric crane so for us once once we've got the crane on site we, we can lift most of our materials on onto the, each of the housing blocks with the crane so we only have one um man or two uh, sort of lifter diesel lifter on site so we're we're a little bit more eco-friendly in that sense but a crane's quite expensive to, to, to have set up for 50 70 80 weeks but it's just cleaner and quieter. Again, it's yep. another issue of, of forcing ourselves to just think about why we do this, isn't there? And the, the diesel generator for a site cabin, for instance, it's e or, or sorry, that's not true. It was easy just to do that, wasn't it? Tr crane it in, yeah. start the site, turn the diesel on, you've got power. Brilliant. And I was chatting to somebody that's been in the construction industry for, let's go with 30 years, roughly. <laughs> um, and in that discussion, um, he said, well, yeah, why do we do that? Um, and we sort of chewed the fat and had a couple of biscuits. And then we got to the <laughs> point of, do you know what? We do that because actually it became quite difficult to get a temporary connection off the grid. Yeah. yeah. So actually, what's the question here? The question here mm. is, why did we start doing this and addressing the root problem? So yeah. actually, why is it so difficult to get a temporary connection off the grid for a site cabin that forces you to do use diesel generators for your site offices? I think that's the root of the problem on that one. Is well, that's another, that's another podcast in itself. Yeah, I'm going to say absolutely. Yeah, 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 but... God, horrendous. That's a very anyway, good point, sorry. though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I very almost got point. on my high horse. I almost got on my high horse there, didn't I? But <laughs> it's a really valid question for somebody to ask. But until somebody asks it, you don't start to think about it again. But it's absolutely right. It's all back to speed again. Of it takes yep. so long through the system and the planning system and the building regs and that get everything organised to get the site oven ready. Yep. Once you're at that stage, you need to get on and you you'll have your funding sat there. You need to use that funding to make it work for you or your bottom line margin that's smaller these days anyway is becomes non-existent and then there's no point in even sort of uh, carrying on really so it's it's all back to just ease and speed which yeah. shouldn't be um shouldn't shouldn't really be the issue we should as you say yeah, then, the Mel, you, you, you're just about ready to start on site you've got all your planning in place it's been delayed and so on and so forth and all of a sudden you've got a nesting season or you've got some bats yep. surveys that need redoing because they've run out and you're delayed again for something else it's yeah. it's such a nightmare and I, it, yes. I wonder sometimes why we bother. Um, my <laughs> wife keeps saying that she just wants a grocery shop. <laughs> I've told her I'm going to work for her. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Wow. It is. It's just constant. It's pressure. It's the push and pull thing again, isn't it? You don't know which way to turn for the best. We all want to, to aim towards a zero carbon cost. We do. We, we want to look after our world, our planet. But how we can do that and still make a living because we have to is uh, is quite yeah. a, a challenge. But optimistically, yeah. if, if a guy that's uh, died in the wool construction chap is saying stuff like that, then maybe the message is getting through. And mm. maybe those suppliers, are think, and I know they are, they are thinking about things very differently. Um, it's just getting to that point of application, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. definitely. And I think on the back of that, I think I've got not only a meeting to organise between National Grid, the DNOs and people like yourself, but also to run 17 separate podcasts. Well, yeah, I've got, um, <laughs> I've got two, Absolutely. Final, two final questions um, for, for, for you guys. The first one, 
is around funding, um, which is, look, you've all got within your respective businesses uh, the capital facilities to go out and buy new land to continue to, to build that pipeline to continue to, in effect, uh, grow your business. But what about, you know, trying to, you know, develop these, these you know, frankly, doing better business uh, initiatives? Do you, is the finance industry, so uh, banks or, or other lenders, caught up and, and can you easily secure the funds that you want? I mean, Pete, do you want to, do you want to begin on that one? Um, as always with these things, I think um, there, there's an emerging catching up. Uh, there are some areas of good practice, some areas that are a little bit behind. Um, but in general, um, I think the messaging coming from funders is good. Um, I think there's a bit to do in terms of catching up on the application, but that's like anything in a new world, isn't it? Um, and I'm fascinated in the um, in the housing world um, as to how uh, the building regulations changes that are happening now and, and coming through and those other changes in legislation will firstly affect um, social housing, uh, affordable housing uh, and the funding routes for those and how that will then trickle through to the private world. And I, I guess actually David and Melissa are probably a bit closer to that than me. I mean, the, um, no, thanks Pete. I mean, with, with, with... I mean, Melissa, Dave, you, you've got a combined twenty million pounds there from um, South Yorkshire Pension Funds to go out and buy, and buy new sites and, and continue to to expand on the work that you've been doing. But clearly, you've both got plans to improve uh, what you end up delivering on site. What's the appetite been from from the industry there? I mean, Dave, do you want to start? Well, we we we've got three funding sources. We we've been recently funded by Lloyd's Bank. And Lloyds Bank wavered. If you got an EPC B or better, they would waiver their fees. So you just paid the interest on the loan. So that was a green initiative from Lloyds. Lloyds have been great to deal with. Very straightforward. Um, then we've we're funded by Homes England, and their agenda is to facilitate um, SME house builders to add more builders to the market, not just the, the nationals. And they've been fantastic, very flexible, not not sort of adversarial as some lenders can be. If you've, if you've got delays or problems, they're, they're flexible. They've been absolutely brilliant. And their agenda is not, not only just building, getting more SMEs into the market, but making sure that you do it differently with a nicer product, with better space standards or environmental standards. And then we've got, as you, as you rightly said, the South Yorkshire Pension Fund. So we're, we're looking for sites in our region. And they're part of part of our bid to get the the funding from them. We talked about all the extra place making, green initiatives, employment, jobs, and, and and they looked at it in the round that if they're going to be lending us money, it's not just on a commercial basis. It's on a, on the basis that we're going to do good in our area with the pension money from the people from our area, which I think is fantastic. And that is probably the holy grail of funding, if you ask me, what we've managed to get with South Yorkshire Pension Fund. It's, it's just amazing. It's given us flexibility. We haven't got to set up a new company per development, so we don't have SPVs. We've got one company, so we, it simplifies the processes for us internally. Um, and it's almost like an old-fashioned overdraft. We can draw down the money when we find the project, and we're not having to go out and redo legal agreements and valuations on every single project. So it's, it streamlines it for us. But the problem is finding the sites, as, as Melissa will agree, finding the sites is actually yes. still difficult. You've got, I liken it to Brewster's millions. We've got all this all this money we can draw down, but we just can't draw it down fast enough because we can't get the sites. We can't buy the sites. And when we do buy the sites, we can't get planning quick enough. We've got yeah. a nine and a half month delay on one project alone through planning. And we've got uh, about five months on another project. 
So yeah, yeah. we're exactly the same as Dave there, and, and I mean the sites that we used to so, uh, find and source as Fenwood Estates, um, the bigger nationals are now coming in and buying some of the smaller sites um, as well, just to keep that hamster wheel going because the the market's been so buoyant that they just that, and they've got all their sort of staff overheads etc that they just need to keep going no matter whether the site has got 50 homes on it or 300 homes on it so sites mm. that Fenwood are bidding on are the bigger uh, nationals are also sort of uh, pinching should we say <laughs> but uh, but yeah the funding the South Yorkshire funding pot is uh, is like a rolling facility really um, mm. and the big the big one for us was being based in Doncaster employing people in in South Yorkshire only and building South Yorkshire Yorkshire predominantly South Yorkshire sites uh, and that was a big a big element of us getting the funding not just everything else that goes with it from a financial point of view. Mm. But could th could those pension funds or should those pension funds be involved with uh, promoting energy efficiency? I mean because clearly you had uh, George Osborne when he was Chancellor he was advocating uh, pension funds to be used for infrastructure works across the UK. Could that be extended? Should that be mandated? I mean, Pete, you're probably closest to this from, from your perspective. Do you think that's feasible or do you think um, we've got more uh, prosaic issues to get over with in the short term? Uh, I think for me, probably the latter. Um, yeah. I, yes. Yeah. yeah I <laughs> that's very, very diplomatic. <laughs> very diplomatic. <laughs> okay, I don't so think we'll, a lot of funders well, are, are too um, driven at the moment by, by the sort of um, zero carbon... Uh, target i think it's uh it's it's not one that's really caught up there it's more the, the guys on the mortgage side as we touched on earlier for the purchasers they're encouraging the purchasers to buy green homes and it, it seems to be that element of, of the funding market that's there first hmm. i do think um pension funds and the like uh, investing in green infrastructure is something i'm going to be covering in future so uh, in a roundabout way thanks guys for, for um initiating that one but um, i mean i mentioned about pete answering diplomatically my final question uh, of the panel is um uh, around liz truss uh, obviously new prime <laughs> minister has had a fairly challenging uh, first week in the job um but you know she, she's uh, like any leader no doubt she'll have issued some kind of uh, 100 day challenge um What's the one thing that each of you would like to ask of her or her cabinet to accelerate uh, transition to more energy efficient housing and development? So there's one thing that the government could introduce in relatively short order. What would it be? Um, I'll start with you, David. Uh, well, I'm going to pick two things. I think the first thing that we should have is no VAT on. Uh, retrofitting homes i think that would be absolutely seismic and if that was coupled with some kind of low interest government back loan where they help the banks lend to people to do that so it might cost you 20 grand but you can get a soft loan i think that would create a lot of economic activity so that'd be number one um what would number two be number two would be some kind of carrot and stick council tax on housing so i think if you live in a polluting house you get higher council tax and if you live in a greenhouse you get less of a council tax i'd also like to see council tax in very central areas reduced to almost a peppercorn amount to encourage people to live more central i think if you did that uh, in one fell swoop you'd have more people living in city centers not using a car and you get all sorts of additional benefits like healthier people that are walking more not using a car 
So they're, they're my two things, current stake taxes. So you've, so you've almost created a free ports for housing there. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. An enterprise zone, housing yeah. <laughs> housing green zones, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, I'm sure there's lots of acronyms we can come up with, but no, um, very good and, and potentially workable. Uh, Melissa, from your side, what, what would the one thing you'd say to the uh, new PM or a cabinet? So in terms of that, I was thinking more along the lines of Dave's talking more about um, purchasers, homeowners, and obviously uh, renovation type uh, works there. I was thinking more along the lines of, again, I know Dave touched on, but government loans, government funding, government grants towards um, elements that we need to be providing in our homes. I think for SME builders, we need some sort of, uh, we need help to, to bring these homes to standard um, because the cost implications are, are sort of massive for us uh, to try and deliver at the standard of the new regs um, and try and meet the or, or contribute towards a zero carbon. So I think something based around a funding element for, for me, it would be more so. Um, I think on that one, Mel, I, I, I talked to Sheffield Council years ago about scrapping Section 106 in affordable housing on certain size developments in certain areas yeah. in return in return for building more beautiful, more eco-friendly. Because yeah. like we said, if you're selling a house in Doncaster for £250 a foot and it's costing you £150 a foot, your margins yeah. squeezed, you need you, something has to give. And I think it should be the sort of planning taxes. I think if they yeah. did something like that, it would really help boost the quality of developments that we'd see as well. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, Dave. The planning taxes absolutely strangle our cash flow. So every time there's a trigger in a planning tax and then we've got houses stuck built but in the legal system that's another podcast um we yeah. we've got no cash coming through but then we are we're obligated to pay the section 106 triggers as they come so that money could be used to bring the homes up to a better standard yeah okay uh the final word is with you mr henry i mean um where would you even begin i think with 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 your asks of uh well, where, where I'm going to begin with is answering like a politician and ignoring your question completely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with three things, uh, very quick fire. So first one is consistency of energy policy over the next five to 10 years and a full recognition that energy policy needs to be decentralized. Second one is to give local authorities the expertise to remove yeah. the disconnect between declarations of climate emergency and what's happening on the ground. And that applies in terms of flexibility of action as well as we've chatted about. And then the last one is actually a bit of a concerted campaign on education for the public as yeah. to what energy means, where it comes from and why they need to worry about it. I think those will be the three things. Yeah, I think the the last one there, Peter, is a, a major one. When I was looking through the report last night and just thinking about things today, um, I think educating young people, well, everybody really, but yep. starting at school, um, yep. it'd be great to see something like that brought in. So could that form, in effect, um, I don't want to labour this too much, but forming part of the curriculum, it used to be known in my day as what, PSE? Yeah. It's yeah, it's PC now. Yeah. yeah, 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 definitely. I think kids need to understand. I mean, as we all know, we've probably all got children or we know children or nieces, nephews, and they wander around leaving lights on all sorts. They just don't understand the um, the implication of everything. I mean, they hear and see things in the news, but it's not backed up with the, the full education on it. And I think that'd be excellent. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, all three of you, for what has been a, a fantastic podcast, covered a hell of a lot of ground. 
uh, in just 70 minutes. Uh, I'll make sure, obviously, that this gets uh, rounded up and, and put onto the website. But thank you very much uh, for, for your contributions, your sage insight, your occasional jokes, and ultimately um, practical suggestions as to what uh, the government and others can do. So thank you very much for your time, everyone. And uh, that is the end of uh, this uh, Better World podcast. So I will bid you all adieu. Thank, thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night, everybody. Thanks, Ian. Bye. Bye.